Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Danielle Visioni, PhD, is today's guest on the Sustainability and You podcast. He is a climate researcher, mostly focused on the modelling of stratospheric processes in chemistry, sulphite aerosols and ozone in particular. He studies stratospheric sulphate injections as a possible temporary technique to mitigate the effects of climate change and how it would interact with key climatic components. He is a postdoctoral associate at Cornell University, having received a PhD in atmospheric physics and chemistry. We talked to Danielle about climate modeling, the approach from the scientific perspective and the use cases within the financial community. So welcome, Daniel, to the Sustainability and You podcast. Emily and I are absolutely delighted to have time with you today. We've been really looking forward uh, to this podcast that's going to focus on climate modelling, both the risks and the opportunity. So welcome from me and welcome from Emily. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So, Daniel, um, I just want to kick things off by understanding a little bit about you. Could you tell us about your career trajectory to date uh, and the work that you have been doing within the climate modelling sphere more generally? Yeah, um, so I did my I did all of my studies in Italy. Uh, my background is in physics. When I started, I thought I was going to do particle physics or something, but then, well, I realized I didn't like that, and I started taking classes in more fluid dynamics and climate science, and so <clears throat> I realized that was something I was really interested in, and I went from there. So then for my PhD, I started looking at the, the impact on climate of volcanic eruptions, and that was during 2015, so during the Paris Agreement, uh, talks, which made me feel like I wanted to do something that was a bit more policy relevant in many ways. And that uh, meant that I moved to climate intervention, to, so to studying possible uh, intervention to the climate to mitigate global warming. And then I went from there. I finished my PhD in Italy and I moved to Cornell, where now I've been five years, first as a postdoc, then as a research associate. And now, depending on when the podcast comes out, I guess it will be official that I will be a professor here at Cornell. 
So that sounds like a, a really fascinating career trajectory. So um, far, and congratulations on your professorship. <laughs> but it'd be great to also hear just a little bit about how you got into, you know, climate science uh, and, and brought focus to that through your studies uh, and wider interests. I didn't even know it was a thing, climate modeling in general, when I was doing my undergrad in physics. Then I took this fluid dynamics class and we talked about El Nino, the Ansel system, and then I started getting interested in climate modeling. And I was, I was immediately fascinated by how complex it was and how many different things it touched. So it wasn't just how complex is a climate model and how many things are there, anything from um, the fluid, the, the ocean, the oceanic fluid to the atmosphere to atmospheric chemistry and aerosols and the biosphere. And so I just thought that it was something incredible that there were there were these tools that one could use. And then it's really been a fascination that it stayed for me. I still think that climate models are incredibly cool as a tool. <clears throat> and then during, well, given my expertise and everything, I started looking at volcanoes, so started looking at the stratosphere. Uh, I did work on ozone recovery after the Montreal Protocol. So I really liked the, my space of being in between physics and chemistry and understanding aerosols, which are a, compl a super complicated part of the climate system for a lot of reasons. And the way in which now with my work on climate intervention, I can join, I, I can both work on the physics side and the policy side of aerosols and what role could they have in possibly mitigating climate changes. Something I'm really interested in. Great. Um, so can you say a little bit about, uh, and if we go back to basics, how one builds uh, a climate model? You have to be a genius to build one. I wouldn't know how to start or build one, to be honest. Um, but if you look at the history, basically, uh, the first in around the 70s and 80s, there were they started to build um, these models. They are fundamentally a different problem than weather forecast models, who had existed, which had existed for a lot more time. So, so in a way, um, climate model, you start off by having the fluid. You need to have what are called. The basic of, of a climate model is what's called a general circulation model. So you have to have a model of how the atmospheric fluid moves at a global scale. Um, and that's hard because that's a lot of Navier-Stokes equations, so a lot of fluid dynamics. And then on top of that, of course, the, the atmosphere is the part of the model that responds the, the fastest to, to every perturbation. So then to have the actual climate, you need to couple the ocean as well. So then you need to start having what's called an atmospheric oceanic global circulation model. So a model that couples and simulates the interaction in terms of energy between the ocean and the atmosphere. And that's essentially what we had in the 80s and early 90s. And those were models that were already capable of, if you look at the first climate projection, they won a Nobel Prize quite recently. But uh, if you look at the first climate projection then from Jim Hansen in the 90s, uh, and you look how well they held up in terms of projecting how much warming there was going to be given an increase of CO2, they actually held up pretty well. Because the energy part is, in a way, complicated, but also the easy part of it. Um, once we now want to, once one wants to move to more refined projections for the future, then there are many things that need to be added. Atmospheric chemistry, so how different components of the atmosphere interact with one another. Aerosols, because they are a, a large part of what happens in terms of climate and then the biosphere so the land that's probably the most complicated part in many ways because the the land model does not follow precise physical loads the same way the the atmospheric fluid does uh, but there's plenty of things there interaction between the biosphere 
and the soils and all of that. So, but if you want to have good uh, projections about the carbon cycle, the fast and slow carbon cycle, so understanding where does the CO2 that is emitted go, well, you need a land model as well. So you can make your models more and more complex. And we're, we haven't, we, we're not finished yet, in a way. Yeah, and if you had to make a statement about the pace of change and the sophistication of the models, given uh, what you've said about all of these interdependencies uh, between the biosphere and atmosphere and ocean, um, would you say that there's still a huge amount um, to to be done to, to get us a, to a place of confidence in the models? Well, it depends. It, it, it depends exactly what you want your climate model to do. And so in many ways, when you have a very simple climate model, that means that you can also understand what's going on in much more in depth. And if what you want to do is understanding the underlying physical processes, then there is a lot of space for simple climate models as well. We use them all the time. The more you go, the more you increase your complexity, the more everything is interconnected, the harder it is. If you're running, we use climate models to run experiments. We might change something that, you know, we're not going to do in the real world, or maybe we are like increasing CO2 or aerosols or whatever. And then we observe the changes. But if everything is interconnected, and there are so many pieces moving all at the same time. It can be hard to start pinpointing exactly what caused a certain change that we see, for instance, the precipitation. So there's a lot of room for increasing complexity and adding um elements to the climate model, but also to stay simple. We need, we still use, and we will always use both complex and simple tools to understand something. And in terms of confidence, a model is always going to be a model of the world. A model is never going to be the real world. And is ne- so it's never going to be used for precise, 100% precise prediction. So what constitutes confidence in the model is actually a pretty huge and complex philosophical question. And and there are and and in a way it comes much more from a place of trust of the population in the scientific community than in the actual precision that you want to have in your climate model. Even as I said, even the model that Jim Anson developed in the in the nineties, those were precise for the purpose that they had, which was to project how much warming there was going to be during this century, given a certain amount of CO two. Um, so we should have been, and 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 the U.S. Congress should have been even more confident that it was in Jim Anson's model. It wasn't; they weren't. Uh, but uh, confidence does not come from increasing complexity a hundredfold. It comes from understanding how we're increasing complexity and and being rela- and, and understanding how reliable our models. That's least on something really nice that my lecturer said when talking about this is that no models are accurate; some mm-hmm. models are useful. Um, right. We say, yeah, we say all models are wrong. Some are useful, actually. Yeah. They're, 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 they're the strongest version. And it's true. A model is wrong if you assume that it's a precise picture of the. We're never going to have that because to do that, you would need to simulate actually every molecule everywhere. Yeah. That's not what we want to do. But we want to have a tool that allows us to explore these interconnections and to understand how they would change in the future. Communicating that is quite key, I think, when you say that something is highly likely or slightly mm-hmm. likely. Some people see that mm-hmm. as sort of a hesitation from the scientific community's point mm-hmm. of view. But actually, you're not going to get 100. So 90 or 96 is really good. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is also why I try to be careful and never use the term predict, but always use the term project. Yeah. Uh, and I understand that people might understand, but it's important because people associate prediction to 100% confidence level or you know we know that it's going to rain tomorrow with a and that's a prediction 
projections depend on a lot of things also because especially when you're talking about future projection, we also need to, to consider the fact that the biggest uncertainty is not in the climate, but is in the, in the societal response. We cannot confidently say how much warming there's going to be in 50 years because we don't know how much CO2 we're going to keep emitting because that depends on society. And that's not the job of climate scientists. So this is why we explore different future scenarios, because there is no way we can predict that part of the societal response. So ours are projections that try to span different scenarios to put essentially error bars to our risk assessment. It's interesting, isn't it, when you, I mean, Emily, you talked about the language of communication and what certainty might mean for a scientist as opposed to the financial community. And, you know, if we look at some of the language within the IPCC report of virtual certainty or highly likely or likely, certainly when you get to statements around virtual certainty, I think that's as near as to a uh, well, it's as it's as emphatic as a scientist is likely to 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 get, but it's not language, for instance, um, that necessarily translates well into financiers' language. So, I mean, thinking that through, Daniel, how do you think we bridge the gap between the climate modelling and as expressed by scientists, and how financiers should interpret that? Uh, when they're placing reliance on models for financial or investment decision-making? Well, it's complicated. I really am not an expert on the financial side, but it's, it's clear that there needs to be growing understanding from the climate science community that our models are not just scientific tools anymore, but that they are strongly used in a, in a wide array of, of uses, anything from insurance to anything, really. And and I start seeing that when I talk, you know, to my students in many ways, and you can I can see how many job offers there are where there are plenty of different institutions that ask for people that are expert in climate modeling and climate output and so on. But I think that in we the in a way departments, uh, our universities need to understand it and to communicate that better, right? So that our tools are not tools just used for scientific understanding anymore, but that they have an effect. And so, and for these, the point that I think needs to be highlighted is that climate scientists are also not usually trained in communicating things to a non-specialistic audience, right? The things that are valued as an academic and uh, even the language that is valued that you are supposed to have as an academic paper is not the language that um, other people might expect of you. Uh, and, and considering how relevant, and it's not going to go away, so I'll more relevant this is all going to become, it's really crucial that um, that academics better understand how to communicate it. So, and this example you made is perfect in a way. So the, the IPCC has really evolved in the, if you look at the reports from 2000 to now, in what value in terms of language they gave to the, you know, the, we know that the warming is caused by anthropogenic sources. Now they got to the point of virtually certain. And before they said like extremely likely and very likely, we, it, has, it, it hasn't been the case that we that our understanding on the physical basis has really changed that much. Again, exactly like we knew in the 1990s, we know it now that the warming was caused by CO2. But there are things that make sense from, and from a scientific theory point of view on how confident you can be that might translate very bad. And there are plenty, I get plenty of questions saying, well, well, but if you only say that it's very like, extremely likely, extremely likely still doesn't mean 100%. So how can you be sure? 
And the fact that we don't need, as a, a scientist and a scientific theory, doesn't need to be 100% sure. It doesn't need to be exactly what the real world is, but it needs to make predictions that, that, that can be tested and evaluated. And that's the same for classical mechanics versus, versus quantum mechanics. Classical mechanics is not true in any sense, but it still makes incredibly great prediction for 99% of the things that happen in our life. So, uh, uh, right, and, and how do we communicate this is the part that is really hard and we should be better at. Do you see it as the role of, like, the scientific community to make it more accessible? Or do you see it as the role of industries to bridge that gap for the scientific community? Well, I, I can only talk from, from my point of view, right? I cannot tell other people what to do. But yes, of course, that that, that is, from my point of view, the other point is really that the the users uh, of the, the people that are starting to become more and more the users of our results need to make an effort to understand and talk just like we are doing. And I, you know, I do that also in my academic career, talking to ecologists or social scientists, and there's always a, bar a barrier in language, like languages are always different. And the, for, at the beginning, it's always hard, like the very first meetings that you have with people that are from another, come from another perspective are always about defining a shared vocabulary, basically. But once you do that, you realize how many how many connections there are. But it always has to be a yeah, it always has to come from both ways. And there can be an assumption, I think, within the financial community that uh, when we talk about modeling, that we're looking at equations where you know A plus B equals C. So um, the the conclusions that you arrive at uh, are emphatic and 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 clear and. You know, we love sensitivity analysis and we have some of that within the different sort of pathways that are presented that are modeled uh, within some of the climate modeling. Um, but but clearly within this type of modeling, there are non-linear events that can occur. And obviously outside of the climate modeling, we talk about tipping points and uh, you know, the nine planetary boundaries and how, you know, if we breach another planetary boundary, we could find ourselves in a completely different, unpredictable world um, from a climate perspective, something that's very difficult to model and certainly something that's very difficult to anticipate from a finance perspective. If you're thinking about uh, tipping points and 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 how where that might take you from a global regional or even you know sector perspective so you know looking for data um, that's reliable and decision useful obviously climate modeling is one of those sort of inputs but you know other words of caution I guess that you would uh, uh, put out there in terms of reliance that's placed um, on those models, um, and how does how does one address that nonlinear world, you know, or potential? Right. Yeah, I think so. This is really complicated, but what some of the things that you said. Um, so things like tipping points are not, or planetary boundaries. Those are not things that are in the climate model. Those are things that are incredibly hard to model. In a sense, we model the current climatic state, and we know that there are things that are like bifurcation events or typical tipping points, however you want to call them, hysteresis point. Um, but those, and, and we might know a lot about that, but those are not necessarily in the climate model. Um, and in a way, these, 
and, and uh, there are things that we we might not know we do not know precisely if there are these tipping points. There are plenty of suggestions that there are, but mostly when do they happen? Um, and there's a lot of lack of understanding in this in a way, which is, which makes sense because it's incredibly complicated. And you know, in a way, but but in a way, the main problem is well, the main goal of organisms like the IPCC and climate science is to say we should reduce emissions as fast as possible and we should avoid um, increased warming, not because we know exactly 100% at what threshold there are going to be tipping points, but because we know that it's better never to find out in many ways. And that's the principle be behind um, thresholds like 1.5 or 2 degrees above pre-industrial for the Paris Agreement, right? It's not to say, I think people may in many ways because the communication around them hasn't been great, but also because people really cannot understand what we mean when we say, well, uh, we should pursue effort to stay below two degrees, not because we know that the moment the word magically goes above two degrees, there's no turning back. A lot of people say that. Uh, well, I've, I've heard many people say that, uh, and that's a fundamentally wrong understanding of the climate system and of tipping points. There are no hard thresholds. It's incredibly unlikely there are any of these hard thresholds after which there is no turning back at two degrees. Uh, but still, we know that risk is going to increase. We can we can understand that risk is, risks are going to increase, and the more we go up above two degrees, the more risks are going to increase. And they're not going to always, we cannot always assume that the changes are going to be linear as they are now. And there could be a point where they start accelerating a lot. Um, but, you know, all of this is complicated and even made more complicated by the fact that these things are not really in the climate model, but we can understand some of them. Climate models are also not the only way in which climate scientists investigate the world. Uh, developing a state-of-the-art climate model and running it for the future is not the only way. We also look at paleoclimate. And so we try to understand, well, how did the world look like when there were similar CO2 concentrations 100,000 or 500 or a million years ago? And there's plenty of proxies one can use. There's a, a, the science is not limited just to, to the climate model. And so a lot of what we understand is also, as you said, not everything can be easy, so easily defined by one set of equations, A plus B equals C. And then if we change something like that, this is exactly what's going to happen, both because there are non-linearities in the system and both because sometimes we have only, in many ways, like an investigative world, like we have what we call proxies, we have clues from the past, and we can assume that something that might happen if we get to similar thresholds, but there are large uncertainties. And so eventually the way that, you know, the best way to understand it is right now we are in a pretty stable climate that we can all enjoy in sense the whole planet in one way or another. And there might be new states of the climate that we might not all enjoy. And we should do all that we can to avoid our climate to move to those other climates because the risks might be unknowable in many ways, which doesn't mean that we don't understand anything, but just that we would go to a completely new state that it might be just hard to understand from our point of view. Communicating this is... I find very interesting because you've got such an existential threat to communicate to people, but you can't model it and say at 1.8, this, this, and this is going to happen mm -hmm. exactly. And 1.9, this, because you can't, you can just say, generally, we should be avoiding this. It could be pretty catastrophic, but we cannot in any certain terms say that X equals Y, which mm -hmm. institutions like the financial institutions really like, because you can see that if you put money there, 
there's money there and things happen and growth happens and it's it's a really interesting thing to be able to communicate um learning about proxies was quite interesting for me i had no idea uh when i started into the world of climate modeling um how people quantified what the planet used to look like and how useful and relevant that is nowadays uh, I wondered if you could speak a little to how climate proxies have informed your work or what your experience is with them in climate modeling. Um, I don't really work that much with proxies, to be honest. But I, I mean, I, 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 it's a, it's, an, it's, a, it's a huge topic. Exactly, I feel like many more people do that because there's just so much to do, and it crosses paleontology and a lot of other fields. Uh, yeah. So going back also to Justin's question about. How do we build the confidence in the climate models, right? Understanding how well they're doing, it's really useful. But honestly, we've only been measuring lots of stuff, like really hard measuring stuff for the last 60 years. Um, and so that's a small record in many ways. And sometimes variability is huge. So it's very hard to figure out uh, whether, what's variability and what signal. And so using proxies is fundamental and can be used in many ways, you know, just global mean temperatures. Um, there are many ways in which, you know, the, the, the shell of particular animals in the in the surface of the sea or on land is determined by how much temperature there is or how much CO2 concentration there are. So there are plenty of, and those are clues, right? Because then you have to dig for them and figure out, oh, we know that these, we know through other clues that these, you know, that these kind of animal used to live X amount of million years ago. And this is what their composition says, the composition of their shell says, which means that we can assume that with a certain error bar, this is the CO2 that there used to be, this is the temperature. Um, and you can do that for a, a lot of different things, anything from you know the uh, Atlantic Meridional Circulation to El Nino. Um, there's, and so this is really like, it's all piecing together, putting together tiny pieces from a past that is fundamentally unknowable and then putting a number to that and figuring out, okay, now... How does our climate model, which behaves okay when it comes to present climate, how does it would, it would it have reproduced this past period? So I work with aerosols mostly, and you know, for and volcanic eruptions, and even for volcanic eruptions, the the big explosive volcanic eruption that changed the climate, the ones of which we have in a way direct measurable experience, are just the ones in the twentieth century, and there were only four. Most uh, the, there were. The, most of the work, you know, my work around exploding volcanic corruptions is based on these four big volcanic corruptions. The last one was Pinatubo in 1991. There hasn't been such a big volcanic corruption in 30 years. Uh, now we had Unga Tonga, but it's a different issue in many ways. But we know that there have been other ones. So, for instance, um, there's been Tambora in, in the 19th century. That was much, much bigger than any volcanic corruptions we had in the 20th century. And there's not that much we know about it because, of course, we cannot know exactly how much the temperature changed in the two years, except from reading diaries of people. Um, but for instance, we can look at um, Antarctic ice and then figure out how much sulfate was moved all the way from Tambora to the Antarctic. And so we can benchmark our models in many ways based on, you know, that those tiny pieces of information that we have. Uh, and considering our aerosols in a way are the most impermanent part of the, of, of the, uh, of, of the climate system, Really, one of the few um, records that we have are Antarctic ice, right? Uh, but not many things get moved all of the way to the poles. So we really cannot, it's really fundamentally hard to understand that much about our past in terms of aerosols. 
It's a very complex jigsaw. <laughs> and I think it was really interesting, something that you said earlier, which you said that effectively these models are projections, not predictions. It's very hard, isn't it, for the finance community then to know how to translate something that is a projection and utilise that as an input into financial decision-making. And I can imagine for the insurance sector in particular, when you're trying to risk assess different mm -hmm. scenarios and futures um, and translate that into risk premia, you know, how, how you do that and do that effectively. Um, you also said that some of your students have been courted by some of these financial institutions and I can understand why uh, because it'll be a fundamental input into uh, the approach to um, risk assessment. That strikes me as um, a really good step in the you know for, for the future for bridging the gap. What, what more do you think we could do to bring the finance community and the scientific community closer uh, together? to help with this? Um, well, so in a way, the other the other part is kind of realizing, well, climate scientists do what they do and develop the tools that they do with kind of a main goal in, in mind, which is, in a way, the academic one, right? Understanding, better understanding science, publishing papers, and so on. So on the other hand, the more we have to realize that our tools are, are being used by a lot of other sectors, maybe we also need to better figure out what do we need to do with our tools for the future, right? If, if our tools are not just for academics anymore, maybe they, we need to move them towards a different direction than we would have if our only goal was the academic one. And this is made complicated by the fact that, of course, the, the incentive structure for a scientist is different from the one for a financial analyst or for the financial sector. Um, so, so in a way, this means also better figuring out, you know, in a way, the same way the financial world works with money is not like the scientific one works differently in the sense that, you know, we do things hoping, you know, for we improve our climate models, hoping that that's something new uh, that, that we can publish and get funding to keep researching and paying staff and researchers and so on. If we realize, you know, if the world in a way realize, realizes that climate models are not, are not just a, an academic tool, but a tool that can be used in in more in a way more concrete ways, uh, then that means that you know we need a different kind of focus. We need to increase. After all, we talk about climate science and you know how relevant it is, but it is kind of a tiny part of the whole scientific endeavor. And there are probably there are still way more money being put on something like large hadron colliders and particle physics than they are in climate models around the world. So maybe if the world realizes that we need models a lot more, then maybe we need to start figuring out a bit better how to uh, make sure that we have the tools to be able to improve our tools. Yeah, and the education, I suppose, um, mm -hmm. mm. because there'll be a lot of, um, I guess, senior financial decision makers who will feel that they don't have sufficient knowledge of the climate science and how they should be levering that knowledge in their financial sort of decision making just just as you're saying from a climate scientist perspective there's probably room for understanding how that information is used for finance purposes and we've seen obviously in many of the cops the desire to sort of bridge mm -hmm. 
gaps in order that capital can flow to where the climate science is telling us it's most needed in terms of climate mitigation and adaption and support the biodiversity loss and investment into the protection and restoration mm-hmm. of nature. Um, so there's probably movement on both sides there that is, uh, I guess, a call out to uh, educational establishments to help us uh, uh, as well bridge those gaps and perhaps develop new courses and educational programs, particularly for the finance community. I wanted to ask you about the use of climate modelling for climate scenario testing. Mm -hmm. As you'll know, with um, institutional reporting and and corporate reporting now for the impacts of climate change on an organisation or uh, a portfolio, organisations are reporting under the task force for climate-related financial disclosures. And one of the things within that the organisations are doing is uh, climate scenario testing, which will is directly related to the operational footprint of an organisation, where it operates, where its people are. Uh, obviously, it's very sector specific. It's very re- regionalised. Can you see um, climate models um, getting so granular and specific uh, to particular areas or micro sites um, that they will help support those scenarios, climate scenario testings sort of more effectively in the future? It really depends on what exactly do you mean by climate scenario testing? Yeah, so take an organisation in a particular um, industry. It could be, let's just say, uh, an airline business. It has, you know, it, it has its fleet of aircraft it's using, you know, fossil fuels at the moment to, you know, propel those aircraft, and it's it, they uh, will have locations for the housing of their aircraft. Uh, so ground, uh, obviously, airports and uh, ground ground crew as well. I'm being very simple, simplified in that uh, analysis. But if they were looking at the impact of climate change on their their business, they'd be looking to um, agree a a climate future that might impact how they can operate effectively. Um, so they're looking at it from a risk perspective, also potentially an opportunity uh, perspective. Um, so obviously they have to do regionalised assessments in order to really understand what those risks might be uh, for them for the future. Um, but that will be a, a case then of saying, well, look, in this particular region, how might climate change impact um, what we do, how we operate, um, as mm-hmm. it is. Um, so that might be, you know, a small airport sites in the countryside of um, the UK. You know, like I mean, I, I live in Bristol, mm-hmm. so it could be Bristol Airport, let's say. Um, so what you know, developing cli- climate models that are being developed at, at that sort of level of granularity. Um, you know, obviously feeding into macro models that are looking at mm-hmm. and global um, impacts as well uh, will be part, I can see, part of the future. There's opportunity to develop those in a much more sort of sophisticated way. But there'll be more demand for that data. You know, one of the challenges mm-hmm. for everyone really is is having access to decision-useful data that helps direct capital to where it needs to go. So these climate scenarios that uh, are being evolved on uh, 
for, 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 for large corporates uh, that are reporting under TCFD um, is, 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 a, is a real challenge. This is, in a way, another incredibly complex topic in the sense that, so, and this is where there's some, it's unclear to the general public in many ways, you know, a lot of times I hear this as well saying like, oh, but, you know, these climate scientists also come up with this scenario, it's all climate scientists, they don't talk to other scientists in other sectors. In a way, that's not true, right? Scenarios are not developed by climate scientists. Um, they are developed by a larger community that is also made of economic modelers. Scenarios are developed through integrated assessment models, mostly. And one thing that the IPCC is always very particular with, they are always try to specify that, is that they don't put any kind of likelihood to different scenarios. For climate scientists, scenarios are just a way to explore a wide array of potential futures, but there's no way they're putting any kind of likelihood to one or the, or even in many ways preferability to one versus the other. Um, so that's where another large gap is, right? So how do we think about this scenario? That's a lot, also a lot of what I do in my work. And it's incredibly complicated because as I said at the beginning, the main uncertainty is not just climate on its own, but it's the intersection between climate and societal choices. And so there is, and there is really, and for that, there is no equation that you can have. There's no, there's, it's very hard to, to, to define, to even think about what a likelihood is in that case, because it depends really on choices and elections and what, how people are going to behave. Um, and so, and so for that, my, the, I feel like there is really no way in which you can ever have a precise prediction. But what you can say is really talk about, well, what's the worst that can happen? And how wrong can we be in our projection of what the work can, can happen be, right? And so, you know, and, and for that, I, I wouldn't say that we really, we're, we're not completely focused, right? If we look at some of the higher emission scenarios that people have studied for a while, now we can say, we can look at how projectories have been going for the last 20 years and say, well, it's extremely unlikely that we will increase our emissions fourfold by the end of the century because we already see how most uh, Western economies are decoupling their CO2 emissions from GDP and other countries are really trying to get, you know, cleaner energy. They're not developing the same way Europe developed in the last hundred years. Um, so that's good. And eventually we can have narrower estimates of what the most likely scenarios are. And then we can understand, you know, so, so, where a climate science and a climate model is never going to be able to say this is how much sea level rise there will be by 2200 or this is how much precipitation is going to change in the next 50 years with this tiny error bar. What we can do is though say, well, in the this is what would happen in the worst case scenario. This is, you know, eventually waiting details. And then, of course, understanding how that combines with investment. It's just about like, if we had perfect knowledge, we wouldn't, you, you know, adaptation would be incredibly easy. We don't. So how there, I, well, I guess what I'm getting at is that we, we, there is no way to perfectly resolve uncertainty. So we will always, any kind of decision, and in your case, what you were saying, investments, will always have to understand that there will always be a fundamental part of uncertainty that is unresolvable. And so we need to act based on that and not, and the, the mistake in many ways is assuming that we cannot act until we have perfect information for the future, as opposed to we need to act now based on the, the uncertain information that we have 
so that we can, you know, be prepared for the future. Yeah, some really interesting points and thought-provoking points uh, made there. But I think what I'm hearing is that we we should use these models to inform our decisions and choices for the future, um, but not view them as um, factual. You know, they're they're, pro- they're, they're projections, um, and that therefore we use them with a degree of caution as one of many inputs into our decision making process yes and we need and everybody needs always to be clear in what choices they're making in their decisions toward how to use them right so so if you you know in a way that like you can you can see that as well if someone says look um this is how much precipitation is going to change based on this scenario and then their choice you know are the, the climate science part of the work is in understanding how much precipitation is going to change in that scenario. But there is a fundamental part of choice on from the user in this in selecting exactly that scenario. So if everybody's more well versed in climate modeling, then the question should be for that person that that person should not is why did you pick that scenario? Are you going for the most likely scenario based on your information? Are you going for the worst case scenario? Because you want to be sure that you're as protected as possible. Um, and so yes, the Really, yes, really understanding that there is always going to be a fundamental amount of choice when when you when you look at climate models and that they are not oracle. You cannot and, and you should not blame your decisions based on models alone if you don't have like a critical outlook of what these models are saying and why you're being confident in that model and why you're selecting the scenarios that you're selecting. So Emily, um, over to you for your last question. So to set this up, let's hark back to sort of summary of the conversation. These models are incredibly huge and complicated. They're reliant on uh, some of the bigger models rely on pretty vast data sets and understanding how things work uh, in, that was a gross oversimplification uh, of climate modelling. But given the recent developments of AI and the public prevalence at the moment, you've got, uh, you know, Geoffrey Hinton's warning in the last few weeks, what do you consider to be the future of AI in climate modeling? And more importantly, do you feel that is the right way to go based on what you've seen? Or do you have an opinion on AI so far? Yes, yes. And my opinion is that no, I okay. Okay. My my first opinion is no, I actually don't think that there's that much room and there probably shouldn't be. And that's for for a main reason, in a way, from my point of view, which is AI and machine learning and those kind of tools are, in a way, their main, you know, they can be incredibly powerful, but their main drawback is that they are black boxes. And and then while, while the main things that we use climate models for is to have them not be black boxes, to make sure that we understand, actually, if there's a causal relationship, if, if we change, if we do an experiment in the climate model and we observe something, we don't just say, oh, this is what we observe, that's it. We, in order to build confidence in the result, we need to be able to understand what's a, what actually is causing that. And if it makes sense from a physical point of view, if what we're observing makes sense from a physical, physical point of view. If you rely too much on AI to, you know, you can feed all of these numbers that we produce to, the, to, to, it, to machine learning, to deep, deep learning algorithm, whatever, and you get some output out of that and you can, pre, you can pretend in many ways that, you know, that then the, this this learning tool that you've developed that it can actually make projections on its own, but the fact is that then at that point those would be 
black box. The, the whole thing would be a black, a black box. And so you have no way to actually determine how reliable these projections are. So, 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 and I understand that it's a lot more complicated in this, and there are there are ways in which it can be used. But uh, there is no substitute, considering that there's what what we care about, what everybody care about, what we've been talking about is how to build confidence. Actually, in many ways, AI does the exact opposite because it we don't understand how AI when we look at these large language models and all they do, uh, you know, they're fun to play with. But we really fundamentally nobody understands how they work. That's the main worry with them, right? Is that fundamentally there are things happening there, and you put things in and things, stuff comes out, but you don't understand what actually caused you know what reasonings in the machine actually made the things happen. And and we cannot have that for climate models because we are not just aiming for precise predictions, but for pre- we're aim- we're not just aiming for prediction, but we're aiming for predictions we can trust. Um, and so it, to, I see it as incredibly unlikely that, it, and, and in a way, not the way we should be going to um, rely too much on AI for the things we do. Thank you very much. That was super comprehensive and a really insightful point of view on AI, actually. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Daniel, thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Really fascinating. I wish you had more time, um, but really <laughs> really thought-provoking. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 